Christians who walk in the Spirit are thoroughly decent people. They're nice people, lovely people, attractive people, the kind of people you want to be around. learning about godliness, what it is, and more importantly, how to become godly men and women. And we've learned that if we walk in the Spirit, we will change those qualities of character that Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit will begin to grow in us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We're looking closely at that list so that we can really get to grips with what it means to walk in the Spirit. We want to know what it means, what it's like in everyday life. And so far we have thought about love, joy, peace and patience. Well, how are you doing? Is the fruit growing? Are you becoming a more godly person? Which one is it that betrays you? There have been some unloving deeds or thoughts this week. Maybe it's the joy that has been letting you down. Have you been gloomy and despondent? Is it the peace? Anxious, fretful, worried, stressed out? Or patience? Did you lose it with somebody? Which one's letting you down? Now, remember, it's not about trying to be more loving or more joyful, or more peaceful, or more patient. That's not the aim of this. It's about walking in the Spirit, living by faith, keeping the flesh nailed to the cross, abiding in Jesus. And when you do that, then you find that the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow in your life, and you become more loving and joyful and peaceful and patient. But we're not finished with Paul's list yet. There are more things on it, and we're going to think about some more of them this morning. Kindness is next on the list. Tolerance toward others. It's about doing nice things and good and helpful things. Not necessarily big things. It's about taking pity on people and helping them out. It's going out of your way for people and being like that consistently. That's what kindness is. We have an example of it in Acts 28. Paul was shipwrecked and washed up on the shores of Malta. And it says in verse 2 of Acts 28, And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. That's an example of what kindness is. Goodness, then, is number six on Paul's list. Goodness is similar in many ways to kindness. I suppose what goodness emphasizes is the idea of generosity. And it also includes the idea of uprightness of heart and life. So this is about being known as a good person. Someone who would do no harm. 
someone who would do no wrong, but more than that, someone who only does good things and right things. Faithfulness is on the list too. Faithful to God, faithful to others. To be faithful means to be trustworthy, reliable, dependable. This is about consistency and constancy, about being someone who does what he says he'll do, someone who doesn't make false or empty promises, either spoken promises or implied promises. Sometimes we can imply that we will do certain things. We don't actually put it in words. This is about not in any way pretending to be what you are not. And gentleness, humility, meekness. A gentle person is someone who refuses to get his way by force or coercion or manipulation or trickery. Softly, softly, gently is his approach. He doesn't achieve his ends by anger or by bullying, or by threats. Paul says gentleness or meekness should characterize every believer. In Galatians 6 verse 1, he says, Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual resource such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Or in Ephesians 4, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Or Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And in 1 Timothy 6 verse 11, but you, O man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Now, do you see the picture that's building up here? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. It seems to me that what this really amounts to is that Christians who walk in the Spirit are thoroughly decent people. They're nice people. Lovely people. Attractive people. They're the kind of people you want to be around. The kind of people you would like to work with. They are safe people to be with. They're people you feel comfortable and secure with. You don't always have to be on your guard when they're around. There's no need to keep your defenses up when you're with someone like this. Somebody like this would never take advantage of you or abuse you or betray you. Or bring harm on you. You could trust somebody like this. There'd be nothing to fear from him or her. You'd know that he or she would always have your best interests in heart. Somebody like this would make a really good friend, wouldn't they? They would be good company. They would be open toward you. Don't you long to have friends like that? It's a harsh and cruel world. There aren't many people that you can feel safe and secure and comfortable with. Kind, good, gentle, faithful people are very rare. Good friends like that are hard to find. Don't you long to have friends like that? And wouldn't you love to be that person yourself? 
Wouldn't that be just wonderful? I guess the fact that that's what you want, well, that's the new nature that the Holy Spirit puts within us, isn't it? He puts within us those desires after godliness, desires to be those whose lives are, are full of the fruit of the Spirit. Of course, there are some people who say they're Christians and they don't seem to have any desire to produce this kind of fruit at all. The attitude that comes across is you've got to look out for number one to hard life and you've got to stand up for yourself, they would say. They'd hoard things for themselves. They'd take advantage of others in business and in friendship. And if you ask them why they do it, well, they say, well, you've got to. It's the only way to get by in this world. It's the way the world is. They're the kind of people who would hardly do you a good turn if there wasn't something in it for them. They're intolerant. They can't have other people in their way. They're always anxiously busy. And they think that that's the way it ought to be. Really, self is the problem for them. They're promoting themselves. They're protecting themselves. They're preserving themselves. Self-promotion, self-protection, self-preservation. It's all about self for them. It's not about Jesus. And I'm not really sure how they can be like that if they ever think about Jesus and what he was like. Maybe it is that they've been taken in by the world. As I say, it's a hard, cold, harsh world. And they have been taken in by what's going on around them. They've become like everybody else and forgotten that Jesus' way is different. Maybe the world's dog-eat-dog ways have worn them down over time. Maybe they set out to be different and they've just got pressurized by the harshness that comes toward them from the world. Or maybe it's just that, well, the heart can be twisted. The Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. They kid themselves by convincing themselves that what they're doing is okay because all the time they are building God's kingdom and doing God's work. And on the surface, they appear to be very noble and very Christian. It might surprise you actually to hear me say that. But the kind of people I have just described, they can at the same time be people who desire to build the church. They desire to serve God. They desire to be leaders and people of influence in the church. But you see, the thing is that they pursue those desires for the wrong reasons. Though they might not admit it. They pursue those ends of building the church and all the rest of it for recognition, for popularity, for reasons of pride. So on the one hand, there is no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, the the gentleness and the patience and the faithfulness and the kindness and the goodness are not there. There's no real desire for godliness, but on the other hand, they believe they're doing good and important work for God. And not infrequently, other people believe it too, because they say, look how busy they are in the work of the church. This must be someone to be respected, and this must be someone to follow, and people look up to them. And I suppose I'm saying this because, first of all, well, if that is you, I want to warn you. The fruit of the Spirit is patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. 
And if that fruit is not growing in your life, you've really got to ask why, no matter how much you're involved in, in Christian work and Christian service, the fruit of the Spirit is what you have to look for. And if it's not there, you've got to ask why, and you've even got to ask, is the Spirit at work in my life? In other words, am I born again at all? Maybe there's some repenting to be done. But again, when we think about Christians who don't produce the fruit of the Spirit, the people we think about are, well, we think about some people who profess to be Christians and perhaps they're unscrupulous business people. Or perhaps they take advantage of others, abuse others, mistreat others in their desire to get their own ends. The people we think about are people who are grossly ungodly people. But of course, you find people like that in other churches. You don't find them here. But in case you go thinking, that was a good sermon for them out there. I wish some of them could have been here to hear it. Let me bring this a little bit closer to home. I look at this list and I think to myself, yes, that's the kind of man I long to be. But that's what I longed to be 40 years ago. I can clearly remember studying Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 when I was 16. 40 years. I've lived for God through those years. I've made my sacrifices. I certainly think it's true to say that God has dominated my life. But I'm still selfish and grumpy. Still joyless. Unloving. Anxious and irritable and unkind and unreliable and rough and harsh in the way I handle people sometimes. I like to think I'm making some progress. I like to think I'm more godly now that the fruit is more evident than it was at the start. But come on, 40 years? Why are we so slow to produce the fruit of the Spirit? I've had plenty of time to think. Time to look at myself in the light of what we have been studying. And I want to really encourage you to do the same. So I'm going to tell you why I think it has been so slow to happen for me. And maybe if I tell you what I can see in me, it will help you. Pride. I'm not talking about out-and-out arrogance. I hope not. I think more it's the kind of pride that comes out of the idea that there are some worthwhile things that I am capable of doing. I I know some things. I know better than some other people. I could even teach some people. And the result of thoughts like that is, when you, you think like that, it's hard not to look down on other people for their lack of knowledge or maturity. If, by God's grace, you know a little more than some brother or sister... Remember, in comparison to the knowledge God has, you think of how much you know and how much more you know than the other person that you tend to look down on. Well, in comparison to the amount of knowledge that God has, your advantage over anybody, however ignorant that person is, is well, it's, it's, it's minuscule really, isn't it? 
I looked down on other people for their lack of knowledge or maturity, so I talk unkindly about them and I behave unlovingly toward them. Or where I have the position and power to do it, I perhaps hold them back thinking that they are not worthy to move forward or when they make their contributions, I poo-poo those contributions. And yet, you know, as I look back, I've seen more godliness in places where Christians are poorly taught than in churches that have the theology right. Beware of looking down on people who are not so well taught as you have been blessed to be. Another way those proud thoughts show themselves is that from time to time I have headed off to do my own thing made plans that seem wise to me. Now, I'm not talking about plans for wickedness here. I'm talking about plans to move the Lord's work forward. Plans for evangelistic endeavours, plans for teaching, plans for counselling. And in my pride, I make my plans and I attempt to push those plans forward with such enthusiasm that I forget to remember to be patient and kind and loving and peaceful. And sometimes I push myself forward because I think the world in general and the church in particular needs what I have got to give. Really? But what is really behind that thought is the thought that God needs me to do his work. That's ridiculous. And sometimes I, in my pride, speak out and say things without stopping to consider, is that what Jesus would say? Actually, pride probably lies at the root of all my lack of growth in godliness. Self, pride, same thing. Self-confidence, self-importance, self-sufficiency. Pride lies behind it, and behind that, because of that pride, I don't always live by faith. I don't, for example, trust God to do his own work. I think God depends on me and my plans to make things happen. Now, here's where the subtle pressures come in. Maybe this is my excuse for it. It's okay to make plans for what you want to do for the Lord. Nothing wrong with making plans at all. That's good. It's okay. You should. But I do think plans are overrated so far as God's work is concerned. Mostly it's been my experience, and again it's easier to see this looking back than looking forward. Mostly it's been my experience that God works in spite of our plans rather than through them or because of them. So many times I've seen endeavours that have been planned, courses of action that have been planned, organisations and structures that have been set up with the purpose of achieving something in terms of extending God's work and building God's kingdom. And years later you look back and you say, well, actually, yes, there has been some progress, but it hasn't been because of the planning, it's been in spite of it. It has been God showing that it was him who did the work, not our cleverness. But we do live in a Christian culture that values the big idea. Build an organisation, start a new activity, that's the way to get it done. You have to drive things forward, you have to make things happen. Some of you are probably even thinking that right now as I'm saying this. 
They're thinking to yourself, well, you know, if we listened to him, we'd never get anything done. Nothing would ever be moved forward. Nothing would ever be pushed. Nothing will change. Nothing will happen. Many times over the years, I've been swayed by that kind of thinking. And looking back, I'm sorry I have, because it's one of the reasons for being so slow to grow in godliness. Pride. And not living by faith. Not content to be patient and kind and gentle and faithful and good and trust God to do his work. Sometimes in the same way I think God depends on me to defend the truth. And because I've got to defend the truth, I will contradict and argue and contend and strive with people. I'd warn other people about the heretics as I see them. It's called gossip, but usually I don't see it that way. And I forget that the word of God is powerful. Remember what Spurgeon said? You don't have to defend a lion. You just have to let it loose. The word of God is like that. You don't have to defend it. You just proclaim it. It does its work. It's powerful. And sometimes I forget too that Jesus was content to lose arguments and to let things go. It says in 2 Timothy 2, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word do I hope. In Lamentations 3.25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So because of pride, I don't always live by faith. Because of pride too, I don't always keep the flesh with its desires nailed to the cross where it ought to be. Oh yeah, I have desires of the flesh too. I'm trying to identify some of them. I like to be in control. Ah, there's a bit of a control freak in me. That's a desire of the flesh. I like to be liked. I like peace and quiet. Quiet and solitude, that's my thing. Yep. And there are other desires that raise their head from time to time, and I'm not going to tell you about them. But I do seem to have an amazing ability for indulging them. Now, don't get me wrong, there are lots of desires that I do deny. But then the subtlety of the thing is that my success against those desires helps me to build stronger excuses to justify giving in to the others. Do you follow that? Look at me. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do any of those really bad things. So what's a little bit of time to myself? What's the harm in that? Or a bit too much food. See how we overcome some of the, the big obvious desires and we use that to satisfy ourselves? It's the little ones. Giving in to the big nasty desires is not really the problem for most of us. It's the ones that we consider to be the trivial ones that really hinder godliness. Trivial desires tied up with a lot of self-deceit and excuse-making. You take impatience, for example. I told you before, people phone me up to try and sell me something. I do not handle it well. I do not like those phone calls. Oh, I can excuse the impatience, all right. Somebody needs to tell them. Somebody needs to show them that this isn't a good thing to be doing. 
Or when the girls were younger, you know, the, the demands that children make. Well, they've got to be taught. They've got to learn. You can't just let them run wild. And I convince myself that my impatience is justified. Or the liking to be liked. There's another example. Well, liking to be liked. It's not really pride. It's just you want to be well thought of because, well, that's a good witness. People look to you as a Christian and you, you, you've got to be well thought of. Desires of the flesh. They're all selfish desires. They're all driven by pride. They're all driven by the thought of, I'm important. My desires matter. It's important that I get what I want. And because of pride, I don't always keep those desires nailed to the cross where they belong. So because of pride, I don't always live by faith. I don't keep the desires of the flesh nailed to their cross. And because of pride, a lot of the time I think I'm doing okay. And because I think I can cope with whatever's ahead, I don't abide in Jesus like I should. He's not always in my thoughts. I'm not always talking with him. I don't always ask, what would Jesus do? My head's too busy. I'm easily distracted. I get taken by surprise and then I do unloving things. And then I lose the joy and the peace. So now you know the kind of me. Proud. Because of pride, not always living by faith, not keeping the flesh on its cross, not abiding in Jesus. But I suspect I'm not that unusual. And I'm saying this to you so that you don't be looking back in 40 years and saying, why has it taken so long? Ask the Lord to help you to see yourself as you really are. But so far as why it takes so long to grow in godliness is concerned, there's, there's something else I would like you to think about. Growth in godliness, looked at from another perspective, is God's work in us, isn't it? The Holy Spirit does it. He produces the fruit within us. He puts the desire after godliness within us. He gives us the freedom. He gives us the liberty. He gives us the ability. He does it all. He gives us the faith. He's the one who gives us victory over temptations. He's the one who stirs up the godly desires and longings. Now, this is not to make an excuse for the pride I've been telling you about. You must never make excuses like that. We are all responsible for what we are and for what we do. But I do think at the same time that more often than not, God allows godliness to come slowly. God is never in a hurry the way we are. Perhaps he allows it to come slowly so that we can appreciate the impossibility of us doing it ourselves. Living by faith, putting desires on the cross, abiding in Jesus is so hard, isn't it? impossible. Maybe it takes you 40 years to work that out. I don't know how long it takes. It takes a while anyway. The fears, the anxieties, the longings of the flesh, the distracting thoughts and the temptations are impossibly strong. The pride, oh that pride is rooted so deeply and it's so pervasive isn't it? 
And even when you convince yourself that you've overcome pride, you find yourself being proud of not being proud. That's how deeply pervasive it is. But when godliness is slow to come, and then when you begin to mourn over its slowness, when you begin to look back and say, Oh, Lord, why is it so slow? Why am I not the man I wanted to be all those years ago? That's when you begin to realize your own inability and recognize your complete and absolute failure. And that in turn does something. You look back and you say, well, that's a monumental failure so far. And that teaches you some proper humility. At least if you really desire to be godly, it will teach you humility. It teaches you to think, Lord, I can't do this. I've tried every way. Fought the battles. Lost a good few. I can't do this. I can't be that person described in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And then that in turn has an effect. That teaches you dependence. Lord, if I'm going to be that godly man I want to be, I don't go one moment of one day on my own. And what's more, when our inability is highlighted and our humility is exposed and our lives become totally dependent lives, then the glory goes to God and not to us. And that's how it should be. People look and they say, there goes a godly woman, there goes a godly man. And that godly man and that godly woman know, and the other people who look on know, but it's not his or her own doing. What an amazing God who can change a life like that. How many times do I have to fall short before I can see? Can't trust myself. I must simply take God at his word. I must put all my desires on the cross and keep them there. No excuses, no exceptions, however good and convincing the excuses may sound, however worthy the exceptions might appear to be, they've all got to stay nailed to their cross. And I must stay ever so close to Jesus, depending on him for every breath, every step of the way. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this passage we've been privileged to study together. We thank you for this list that holds up before us the picture of a godly woman, a godly man, one who is loving and joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, and gentle. Oh, Lord, it is such an attractive image. And it is, Lord, what we desire, what we long for. We thank you that you have put that desire within our hearts. Oh, Lord, we come to you to acknowledge that we cannot do it on our own. We depend on you, Lord, for every step of the way. Help us to change and to become those godly men and women that the glory might go to you and to your Lord. For we pray in Jesus' name.